Welcome back to New Books and Native American Studies. I'm your co-host, Erica Easley-Hauser. In this interview series, each month, we feature a newly published work in Native American and Indigenous Studies and spend some time speaking with the author. Today, we're fortunate to have as a guest, Joy Porter from London, England. She's the author of a book entitled Native American Freemasonry, Associationalism and Performance in America, published in 2011 by the University of Nebraska Press. When we first think of the history of Freemasonry, ideas that may pop into our minds might be to think about grand Masonic lodges as marking inclusion of members and exclusion of others. Or relatedly, we may think of Freemasonry as a mysterious organization which has various symbols with meanings for elite members only. In fact, the history of Freemasonry in America was deeply rooted in the history of republicanism from the colonial era. Freemasonry membership fostered a sense of American pride and provided a network for its members who each had an expertise in various professions or crafts. The forged sense of brotherhood provided support and included Native American members. Listen in as Porter explains this fascinating study and addresses both the history of Freemasonry as well as its decline in the 20th century. We have on the call today Professor Joy Porter, and I wanted to start off and just thank you so much for joining us on this podcast series. Oh, thank you. You're very welcome. You're very welcome. <laughs> Yeah, I'm very excited to talk about your book. Uh, I was excited a few months ago when I stumbled upon it and was researching and uh, was really excited to read your work. Uh, but before we get into discussing uh, your work, can you just tell us a little bit about yourself, uh, where you're from, and how did you come to writing this book? Yeah, I work in the UK at the University of Hull, and I am Irish from Northern Ireland, actually, which accounts for my accent. And I think it's great that you're doing this. I think it's brilliant. Someone who's a PhD is so active and dynamic and, and you know, making some kind of record of their reading as much as anything else. I think it's, it's a really good thing. Oh, thank you. I came to this, oh, I, I wish I could give some very cogent narrative, but um, <laughs> I've been researching for some time Native questions and uh, I did a book on a guy called Arthur Parker who was a big anthropologist in New York State, uh, and he was Iroquois, Seneca Iroquois. And I remember his daughter very kindly showed me into his bedroom, and he was long dead. He'd been dead for 40 years. And I saw all around his bedroom all this native memorabilia, and I thought, that's interesting. I had no idea that so many native men were actually very keen and serious Freemasons. And it turned out that Parker was about the highest up the tree of Freemasonry that you could go. And that started a a pretty long process that was then funded by various bodies. And I ended up going to about 18 different sites before I wrote this book. So it's you've got to be careful in life because one little event, a door opening literally, can set you (laughs) off on a six or seven year project. Oh, wow. So that's the, the short answer. Okay, well, that's really interesting uh, to to hear you know hear the story. I, you know, I know you talked a little bit about that in, in kind of the introduction of your work. Um, I also just was interested, just for the listeners, to get a sense of you know what did you mean uh, when you think of the terms of the book? You know, associationalism and performance. What was it that you're really trying to evoke in terms of your overall argument regarding Native American Freemasonry? 
Well, I wanted to do more than just retrieve history from the past because there isn't a book about Native American Freemasons, so there is this basic retrieval work that has to be done where you say, here are people we didn't know about who were Masons, or here are people we knew about but didn't know they were Masons. So I wanted to do that work, but I also wanted to do more. I wanted to say, this has got something to do with current quite sexy trends within history. Um, Mm -hmm. And one of the most attractive trends at the minute is this notion of performance. So I, I, I tried to fit the whole thing into that performance paradigm. And my conclusion largely was that performance doesn't quite work when you apply it to Freemasonry or possibly any ethnic question, any question that's got key differentials of power and, and race being one of them. But I, I, I thought the journey was very worthwhile to go on to find out whether this highly performative phenomena of Freemasonry, which is all about performing regularly rituals in front of other men, mm-hmm. whether the performance set of theories worked when you applied it to it. And the associationalism that is Freemasonry as a, a community group, how it operates within societies. So you know, there's been quite a few books written recently bemoaning the fact that Americans aren't associating as they once were. They're mm-hmm. not going to the Masonic Lodge. They're not bowling as often. They're not doing little league. They're, you know, people are tending to be much more insular, private, individualized. Mm-hmm. And the thinking is that this is very dangerous for democracy and for all mm-hmm. our futures. So mm-hmm. I thought I'll put Freemasonry, which is probably the biggest association for white males anyway, uh, that there's been in the 20th century, I'll put it into historical context and I make a series of arguments about whether we actually should be freaking out that, <laughs> that we no longer have Masons doing what they do on the same scale and whether this is actually a problem or not. And I largely come out on the conclusion that, you know, we really have lost something, you know, because although our grandfathers and sometimes fathers of Freemasons, the younger generation aren't joining in the same numbers, and that will have a societal cost. Hmm. So roughly that's, that's the three terms of the book. Okay, that's really interesting. Uh, you mentioned, you know, just in, in thinking about that, um, kind of the, the sort of present day, uh, I guess you could say, debates about Freemasonry. But I wanted to get, you know, into some of the earlier centuries of debates, um, particularly about Native American Freemasons and sort of thinking about something you talk about, you know, this idea of uh, the civilizing missions that occurred in the 18th and 19th centuries in America. Can you talk a little bit about, you know, the links between those concepts of civilizing and Freemasonry? Well, it's hard not to see Freemasonry, which is basically British or Scottish in its origins, and it's it's very much white, male, Protestant, middle class in the United States. It's very hard not to see a Native American person who gets involved with it as, in some sense, assimilating. You know, they they really are taking on a white organization and becoming part of it. Um, so I suppose if if you want to see civilizing in those terms, you can read it that way. But what I argue is that actually Native men were using Freemasonry to advance their own concerns, and in a way they were civilizing 
Masons, as much as Masons were civilizing them, mm. because there's a mutual education going on, and to some extent, a, a trading in mythology. And, you know, these people are sharing ritual together, so it's quite an intimate thing. So they're, they're, they're getting to know each other. There's a propinquity where, where they're side by side, uh, which is very important for advancing discreetly Native American concerns as, as, as much as it is, um, inculcating non-Native values in the Native peoples. So I'm, I'm mm. quite interested in the, in the two-way flow here. Mm, okay. Did you don't okay, bear in yeah. mind that there was nowhere to practice ritual for many of these uh, Native men, nowhere in culture where it was acceptable to continue practicing ritual, but you mm. could within the Masonic Lodge. So it's kind of, and there's an inevitability to that if you have generations who've been denied the possibility of practicing their own ritual-based faith. Okay. Okay, that's interesting. Um, I also thought about, too, this idea, and you, you mentioned a lot of the various terms that come out when we think about, you know, Native American history, uh, you know, the vanishing Indian paradigm, and you also talk about this idea of, you know, playing Indian off of uh, Philip Deloria's work uh, from that same title. And I thought about this in relationship to some of the 19th century organizations that come up of white men who uh, inevitably basically were sort of evoking indigenous practices and, and somewhat um, arguably kind of using uh, their ideas of natives in their own practices like Tammany Hall or also I know Philip Deloria talks about uh, after the War of 1812 there was an organization called the Society of Red Men which was actually you know comprised of white men and I just wanted to get your, <laughs> to get your sense of some of these you know kind of connections particularly in the 19th century of, of organizations and the ways in which inevitably we, we see this connection of the sort of playing Indian um, in this way? I think um, Phil Deloria is a wonderful scholar and he's come up with this, this wonderful book and, and pinpointed this great idea, which actually Arthur Parker, I think, coined the phrase of playing Indian. He's very aware of it, you know, that there's something weird that goes on whereby non-Indians... Uh, like the idea of, uh, of 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 Indians who who act in a certain way that is conventionally Indian. Mm-hmm. So you find Iroquois like Arthur Parker, ex- who, who wear a gastuwe or small little headgear normally, mm-hmm. being expected to appear Indian by wearing enormous Sioux headdresses, which is the mm-hmm. conventional Hollywood Western movie idea of what an Indian looks like. Right. So, and I think this phenomena is still going nice and strong. And I think it it doesn't apply just to Indians. I think you know, many's the time I've been expected to play Irish myself. You know, where people expect, especially British, to expect the Irish to be in a certain way. Mm-hmm. And I think we, we're all we're all swimming in a sea of stereotypes and and having to navigate and negotiate them. And I, I think Deloria brilliantly brings that forward. Thank right. your question, or was there more to it? Um, no, that that was pretty much, you know, just kind of thinking about, you know, that particular moment and, and trying to sort of see these links of, of organizations and uh, that come out in the 19th century particularly. But, um, yeah, I think that, that's... In, in the Masonic sense, um, I think Masons quite like the idea of, of Indians being part of their organization because they, in their rituals, tend to dress up as 
pre-Christian often, or um, yeah, probably pre-modern figures like ancient pharaohs or sometimes Indian chiefs or mm-hmm. figures like that. So to have actual Indians there was was rather wonderful. It kind of legitimized my masonry. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, it wasn't an anathema to them. Whereas for the red men, they were more interested in fraternal ideals of advancing white people. Mm-hmm. They were wedded to a totally phony idea of what mm-hmm. natives were, and real Indians shattered that so they couldn't possibly have them as part of their organization. Right. And the nice thing right. about Masons, because maybe because they operate in a different history, you know, they have this concept of Masonic time, which is different from regular time. Mm-hmm. And they were quite happy and able to incorporate real Native Americans to their abiding credit. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, you also talk a bit about um, some biographical information. You've already mentioned uh, Arthur Parker uh, was actually connected to Eli Parker. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. Um, Eli Parker, you might have heard of as he was a great friend of Ulysses S. Grant, and he, you know, he ends up um, Commissioner of Indian Affairs and so on. His life ends quite negatively, but you know, he's a very well-known figure and someone who was a very important Freemason. He's the great-grand-uncle of Arthur Parker. So Eli is back in the Civil War era. Arthur is in the early 20th century. And Arthur very much sees his life through the lens of his famous relative, and he wants to be just like him. And the Masonic torch is passed through the generations, uncles being quite important. Uh, more important than it would be in in non-Indian culture, um, and and Arthur tries. Well, he he does become a, a supreme sovereign grand inspector general uh, within Freemasonry, which is the highest administrative post. And he really tries to be a Mason to advance his assimilative project for most of his life. He's in the Society of American Indians and things like that from 1911. He really believes in the dream that you can be both Indian and a successful Native American on Native American terms. And as his life progresses, he loses that belief. So they're both fascinating figures, I think. I think it's probably time someone wrote a new book on Eli. Yeah, he's, he's definitely a, a figure who's you know, someone who I've definitely read about, and it's a, he's a fascinating uh, person. He's got a link um, uh, even to Karl Marx, because um, Lewis Henry Morgan had Eli as his informant for his anthropology, and Morgan was important to Karl Marx and Engels in, in writing their work. So there's a very odd little pathway there from a, an Iroquois figure all the way to mm-hmm. Karl Marx. <laughs> wow, that's interesting. Yeah. Um, you also talking about kind of links here. Um, you talk a little bit about uh, some of the links between Mormonism and American Freemasonry. Um, and certainly, you know, Mormonism is a subject that I think has had a kind of renewed interest, uh, certainly here. With uh, the Mitt Romney thing? The Mitt Romney, exactly. <laughs> I think there's just been an increased I'm afraid I'm losing your. I'm losing the sound of you. I'm afraid. Okay. Can you hear me now? Yeah, I can hear you. Okay. Yeah. 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 Yeah
can hear me okay? Is that okay? Uh, yep, keep talking. <laughs> okay, I can hear. Uh, that's perfect now. That's good. Yep. Okay. Yeah, um, yeah the Mormon Indian link is bizarre. You know, I, I just, I, I really do think it is bizarre. And in many ways, Mormonism, it's this homegrown American faith, you know, and it's it's an interesting reminder that not all Americans in the 19th century thought in the same way about Indians. Mm-hmm. And Masonry kind of valorizes Indians in an insane way because they're they're very much part of the heart of of the Masonic dream that somehow they'll redeem Indians. And I go in in the book into the kind of Indian and Masonic roots of Mormonism. Mm-hmm. And of course, you know, as with a lot of faiths, when you look at the actual creation stories and the, the the ideas behind it, they don't really hold water. And then modern Mormons will say that, you know, they're reinterpreting things and, and so on. But I think it's hard not to say that there's a, a, a certain notion of what an Indian is and at the heart of Mormon, the Mormon faith. And there's also... Um, a lot of Masonic symbols and imagery, and of course Joseph Smith was very much tied up with Freemasonry. And I think the whole mixture is a kind of ragbag of fairly bizarre but revealing connections. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, speaking of connections, I also appreciated, and I think what uh, particularly was one of my interests uh, when I came to your work was the connection of. Free, uh, Freemasonry, the Prince Hall Freemasons, uh, the African American Freemasonry organization, and thinking, you know, of these connections with Native American Freemasons. Can you maybe talk a little bit about that connection? I guess it's not that good a story, you know. Um, <laughs> I mean, it's hard to look at any organization in the period we're talking about, twentieth century, really, uh, and before. And, and them to come across very well because Freemasons did maintain the color line. But so did every other major organization. Mm. So it depends how you want to read it. Masons were not prepared for there to be black Masons. Jewish Masons, yes, to some extent. Native American Masons, yes, to some extent. Blacks, no. So you have this parallel organization created, Prince Hall. Mm-hmm. And I have in the book some quite frightening negative statements from Masons against blacks. But at the same time, you have guys like Albert Pike, who's this mm-hmm. wonderful 300-pound figure, who is positive largely towards Prince Hall Masonry. Mm. But they do maintain the color line. There's just no suggestion that they will allow them into the Masonic Lodges. And I guess there's no other reason other than racism. You know, it's mm-hmm. hard not to see it any other way. Right. But at the same time, blacks themselves are very positive towards Freemasonry. And there's, there's, there's lots of evidence of black men getting a great deal from the ritual and the fraternal comradeship that Masonry offers. Mm-hmm. So, um, and you know, there's been talk that Albert Pike, who's this doyen of Freemasonry, was actually in the KKK and so forth. And, you know, they, they didn't like the idea of his statue in Washington. 
Mm. And there was talk of tearing it down and so on. Mm. But, but actually, I think masonry isn't really about the color line, although you can make that case if you're so minded. There's you know? mm-hmm. a bit of a, okay. a wishy-washy answer. Okay, I mean, you're well, kind of missing the point of Freemasonry if you see it simply as um, as a as being racist. Right. Not that there weren't elements. Of, I mean, I mean, any organization that is exclusionary, you know, it keeps out women and blacks is by definition, you know, not uncomplex. Right. Exactly. But I think there is more, much more to it than that. Okay. Well, I also um, just was curious. I know you're uh, working on a lot of new uh, research now, and can you talk a little bit about some of that? Yeah, I'm just finishing a book on a guy who claimed, this might connect with a conversation we were having offline, um, who claimed to be Native American in World War One, mm-hmm. and he ends up the lover of Siegfried Sassoon, and he's published by Virginia Woolf. And he maintains very much that he is native and is adored by the Bloomsbury set for that reason. And I trace his story and why that may be. And this comes out with University of Toronto Press. And then I've, I've been doing another project on tribal diplomacy and the presidency. And that's another one of these projects that's enormous. Right. I've I've only just begun that. I've been out in the Southwest and at the Nixon Library and places like that. Okay. So that's that's what I'm doing. That sounds fascinating. Well, I do want to just thank you uh, for your time today. I know we had a little uh, technical glitch with the sound uh, quality. You're calling all the way from London. Uh, So I want to thank you for your time and our conversation about your work, Native American Freemasonry, Associationalism and Performance in America. Thank you so much. Thank you. All right. Take care. Bye. You've been listening to New Books and Native American Studies. We've been speaking with Joy Porter, author of Native American Freemasonry, Associationalism and Performance in America, published in 2011 by the University of Nebraska Press. For more information about this podcast series, you can find us on the web at newbooksandnativeamericanstudies.com or follow us on Facebook to leave questions or comments about new books that you'd like to hear on this program. I'm Erica Easley-Hauser, and thanks for joining us.